Welcome to the Drawdown Agenda podcast, a collaboration between the Sustainability Agenda and Drawdown, a truly inspiring project that ranks and evaluates the 100 most powerful carbon reduction solutions that can help us achieve drawdown when greenhouse gas concentrations peak and begin to fall. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight I speak to leading drawdown researchers who have worked to identify and measure different drawdown solutions. We explore the research, discuss how these solutions work in practice and learn how we can take collective action to achieve drawdown and help reverse global warming. I'm very pleased today to welcome David Mead to the Drawdown Agenda podcast. David is a Drawdown Research Fellow whose main focus has been building efficiency. He's a building performance specialist at PAE Engineers in Seattle, and he works as an energy engineer and architect, integrating engineering and architectural solutions into sustainable buildings design. So thank you very much, David, for joining me today on the Drawdown Agenda podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Fantastic. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your role in Project Drawdown? Yeah, I I found out about Drawdown through a call for advisors through the Sustainability Roundtable. And after reading the goal of Drawdown on that website, I was it it was one of those moments where you you see an idea that it seems so obvious, like why isn't anybody talking about solutions? And I was really excited about that. Uh, there it was a call for volunteers to be part of the Drawdown Carbon Council, was which was really to be like an advisor um, from the professional community for Drawdown, and reached out. Uh, my firm PAE, where I work, it's an engineering firm in Seattle, Washington. Uh, we were brought on as advisors. And then a few weeks later, Paul Hawken reached out to me asking if I'd be interested in the Net Zero Buildings Fellowship. And I was honored, a bit intimidated, because I'm a little, my background's different than most of the people who were involved. Most everybody tends to be more in the research or university realm, whereas I'm practicing as a consultant on projects. Um, and adding this on top of my normal workload was definitely a little bit tricky, uh, but it was definitely worth it. Uh, and it, I think I brought a different take to it, because I'm out there in the real world trying to implement uh, solutions with clients every day. So I work as an architect and engineer within PAE. I lead our building analysis and modeling group in Seattle. And uh, our goal as a company is to help solve the planet's energy and water crisis. And we do that through lots of different projects from uh, large-scale campus uh, designs to single-family homes, uh, kind of everything in between. Great, great, great. So I'm wondering maybe just to give you an overview, I guess, of uh, buildings and cities. Uh, how important are they in Project Drawdown, would you say? Yeah, they're enormously important. Uh, they don't rank as high as they could have, largely because of the framework. Uh, so the way that Drawdown broke the solutions up, it makes buildings and cities look like they're not as big of an issue as they really are. And that's just because... Every solution's very much technology-focused. So you have rooftop solars not included in buildings, for instance, it's an electricity side. Um, And every separate technology is broken out. When you combine it all together in buildings, which um, because buildings are a conglomerate of lots of different technologies and solutions, uh, it 
is a much bigger issue. Uh, it's just the way it's framed and broken out, it makes it look like less of an issue than it really is. Yes, because that, that's an important idea, isn't it? That um, you know, all of these uh, new technologies, they all come together, don't they? And new projects and, and many governments. And I know in London, they have specific requirements for um, you know, recycling or for energy use and things like that. So it, it does make sense, doesn't it, to put them all together? Yeah, absolutely. And um, when, you, when you look at it across the sector, like, there was a recent report that came out from the, the UN uh, that was looking at overall emissions for, from the building sector. And buildings actually account for roughly 40% of the emissions globally uh, when you combine it all together. So that includes direct and indirect emissions. Uh, so drawdown is really looking at direct emissions. So the difference there is that uh, direct emissions are not including the electricity uh, emissions coming to the building. So you're kind of drawing a line around a building and just looking at what's happening inside of it versus uh, what it takes to get energy to the building. But when you include, when you draw that boundary and go all the way back to the source, uh, that's when it starts to have a much bigger impact. Right, right. And I guess just that means from a policy perspective, I suppose, and this is always an interesting question, which um, I know in, in, in the current version of Drawdown is not focused on so much, but um, it, I guess it means it's more amenable. Um, that's something that you're looking at that, you know, at a policy level that can have a bigger impact when you put it all together. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The, when, you, when you pull it together and you look at buildings holistically, I mean, you have to look at it from an urban planning standpoint. Uh, and a policy standpoint to try to get um, everything working together to try to reduce emissions. And and Drawdown touches on that because it, it talks about you know transportation to and from buildings, uh, water distribution to and from buildings, and um, another a number of other aspects of it to try to kind of look at it holistically. But when you break it out into separate solutions, it, it kind of takes that holistic understanding away the way that in the building industry, we tend to look at it project by project or campus by campus. Right, right. Because I guess uh, concrete is, is another uh, big issue, isn't it? Uh, cement and uh, how does that play into it? Yeah, concrete's definitely a big issue. I mean, there's some interesting technologies out there. Just in general, embodied emissions of materials is um, r rising up to be a much larger issue. Uh, it's not just concrete, also steel and insulation, actually. Uh, there was an article, you might have seen this last year in China. They We were noticing lots of CFCs um, over in the atmosphere. Yes, so yes. We, were, we weren't meeting all of the ozone depletion targets for CFCs in the atmosphere. And they traced it back to Chinese insulation uh, fabricators who were using CFCs to blow insulation. And it works great as a blowing agent. Uh, in the U.S., uh, companies still use HFCs as blowing agents and, and some other like high uh, emissions um, gases. And, and that can make the embodied emissions of insulation so high that you can never overcome the the embodied emissions built into them and concrete concrete's a little bit of a different issue but there's definitely mixes and solutions for it and i think that that's something that um, across the planet everybody needs to start focusing in in on more
Yes, and, and I guess also refrigeration, uh, refrigerant management, I mean, that comes out as the number one solution across the whole of the drawdown research. And of course, that presumably is intimately linked to, to cities as well. Yeah, absolutely. That that's that was the most surprising um, thing that came out of Drawdown for me and I, I think for a lot of people. And within our industry, we've seen the most interest in that topic, at least in the U.S. with clients. Uh, we had a number of clients reach out to us asking us to come and present on it after that came out, which is great. Like when I go to architects' offices, um, like so many architects have a drawdown on um, their desk or on their bookshelf and they kind of mention it. And it's exciting just to see like how inspired people are by solutions. Uh, and in the refrigerant discussion, it's really been refreshing because it's a topic that it's really been completely under the radar of the industry. People haven't been looking at it or tracking it very closely we had seen the impacts of that on some projects when we do holistic emissions analysis. So we'll look at the embodied emissions, operational emissions, and refrigerant emissions on projects. Um, but it, so much of it depends on leakage rates. And even within the research, the, the data on leakage rates is quite nebulous. Most of it's on CFCs. When you get into HFCs, there isn't very good documentation on, on leakage rates. Um, but the reason why it's the n number one solution is because we're doing such a poor job of managing refrigerants. Uh, so it's kind of low hanging fruit to try to recover more of that. And, and it, it affects uh, countries all across the globe, um, developing and developed countries. Yes, because I guess underlying this, I mean, we're talking about buildings, but uh, I mean, urbanization is um, it's maybe to some degree an untold story, isn't it? I mean, the, the levels of urbanization and overall growth is fantastically high and, and seems to have been you know, systematically underrated, undercalculated. This is a very big story, isn't it? The growth in cities. Yeah, you know, I've seen some numbers recently where they'll say more than half of the global population is now concentrated in urban areas. You'll hear that. But by 2060, uh, some people are saying two thirds of the population would live in cities. And that would be um, essentially doubling the global building stock by 2060 or so. And that is, is context that's roughly... Uh, adding an, a new entire New York City uh, one month for every month for the next 40 years across the planet. And it, it's always hard when you hear things like that because it's hard to really understand like what's what's the impact and the scale of it. But we're scaling up so fast. And with buildings, it it really is key that we make changes now because when you build that infrastructure, often you're building an infrastructure for the life of a building and it's much harder to swap it out after it's built. Uh, so it's definitely tricky if we're, if we're slow to adopt a lot of these solutions in the building sector, we're kind of baking in emissions within the, the built environment for, you know, the life of, of buildings. So that, that includes building envelopes, um, using fossil fuels uh, for for heating um, and also refrigerants. If, if you're using systems with high refrigerant volumes, um, it's kind of baking that in. It's harder to change it out later. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and that, I guess, taps into a, an, an important distinction, I guess, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts, between existing buildings and new construction. Do do existing buildings matter? Yeah, for, for sure. I, 
When I was looking at it, I was a little surprised. So I was involved with the Net Zero Building Fellowship, and in Drawdown, none of those results are published because it it includes so many of the other solutions. So it was really hard to break it out and not double count. And the Drawdown methodology was to be as conservative as possible so that it was defensible, so that people couldn't come and say, oh, you know, you're being overly optimistic. So all of the analysis within drawdowns trying to be extra conservative so people can't, you know, claim that we're over claiming things. But when you, when you look at zero buildings, um, if, if you assumed the ideal solution and assumed both the direct and indirect emissions, so the ideal solution would be almost all new buildings would be net zero. Um, it would be probably between a hundred and 200 gigatons saved which would be the largest savings of any solution within drawdown. Um, but once again, that, that combines everything. Uh, and so the challenge though, is we really need to do that. We need to make all new buildings, net zero carbon, um, and, and retrofit our existing buildings to get the emissions way down. And what I saw, the challenge is as we're adding all of this new square footage, we need to reduce our emissions from where we are today. So it's kind of extra hard because you're not only adding new square footage, which means new emissions per building, but you also have to draw down where you're at. So that that's the big challenge in the building sector is to, to make new buildings, net zero carbon, and retrofit existing buildings to get them to meet things like the Paris Agreement. Yes, yes. So what are a couple of the uh, most important solutions uh, yeah, so the within the framework, the, the number one uh, solution within buildings and cities that came out was district heating. And the key there really is about energy sharing. Right now, we, we don't do a great job of sharing energy. And uh, I've been reading a lot of books about physics lately uh, and physics of time, actually, and a few physicists have some pretty interesting ideas about um, the equations within um, within physics and how time works. So the only real uh, equation that talks about time is entropy. And entropy looks at uh, everything moving towards uh, uh, disorder, right? So the first law of thermodynamics talks about uh, the conservation of energy. So it's kind of ironic because we're always talking about how we need to conserve energy, but the first law of thermodynamics points out that all energy is conserved. So what we're really trying to do is reduce entropy. So energy from the sun is a source of energy with like low entropy, whereas uh, once we were using that, it moves to higher states of entropy. And things like district heating, it's a great example where if you're using a, a source of energy like fossil fuels or solar energy, which is a low entropy state, you're trying to keep it in as low of an entropy state for as long as possible so that you can reuse it over and over uh, before it gets to these higher states of entropy where it's dissipated heat and it's really hard to get much out of it. Right, right. And what's the state of play with that? I mean, it's not something I'm at all familiar with. Uh it's still, it, the adoption rate's quite small. Uh, you really need smart planning as well. It, it tends to happen at campus level. We work with a lot of universities. It's a big topic um, in the U.S. and Canada right now for uh, 
cities and definitely university campuses, some corporate campuses. I was involved with the Amazon headquarters here in Seattle. Uh, it has a district energy sharing system where they're they're taking waste heat from a data center next to uh, the Amazon headquarters and using that to heat heat the facility, uh, which is great because that you would normally be using energy to reject the heat with air conditioning systems, and instead you're just moving that heat across the street uh, to to heat a large office building. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what about insulation? I mean, that's something that is on, I guess, uh, as a householder, as people's mind. Uh, everyone has, uh, you know, whether wherever they live, uh, have have questions around insulation. Um, did that come out high? Yeah, insulation was was number two. Uh, that offered um, eight point three gigatons of savings. Uh, that once again, it comes back to the entropy discussion. If you're putting energy into your home, uh, you you're using low entropy state and you want to keep it there and as usable as possible. So the best example of that globally is a movement's the passive house movement. Uh, it's highly focused on um, having a ultra airtight envelope and thermally uh, tight envelope so that you're not letting energy leak out and dissipate. Uh, and and for every existing building, that's one of the, the easiest things you can do. Uh, the next thing would be probably be uh, LED lighting. Uh, that adoption rate's been quite high. It's expected that ninety percent of lighting by twenty fifty or something like that is going to be LED, and that's largely economic. It's just cheaper, and it's kind of an obvious solution at this point. Um, and then the but the next thing is heat pumps. I I actually think heat pumps the way that the calculations within drawdown are estimated. I wonder if it underestimates heat pumps. When we work on projects, we see heat pumps as often the the largest emissions reduction source. Uh, and that's because often they're replacing fossil fuels, especially natural gas. And the emissions rates for natural gas often are underestimated because they don't take into account uh, methane leaks from things like fracking. So when you start, if you use the different natural gas emissions rates, um, the impacts of things like heat pumps can be dramatically higher. Absolutely, absolutely. And I guess the uh, talking about the the energy side of it, um, rooftop solar, which isn't actually under your rubric, as it were, <laughs> um, is a, in a sense, I mean, a very natural fit, isn't it? Yeah, it, we looked at it within the net zero buildings. So like a net zero building should define that for everybody, I guess. So the concept of net zero is that a building generates as much energy on site annually as it uses. And uh, li the living building uh, solution, I was there was research done on that before I was involved with the net zero buildings portion of it. A living building takes it a few steps further where it collects as much water on site that it uses annually and um, doesn't add um, waste to like municipal uh, sewer systems and it and storm systems. So it's trying to act like a plant where it, it's treating everything on site. Um, and and for both those solutions, on site solar is the key uh, solution. Wind is still pretty challenging. I've I've worked on 
some projects with wind, but you, you tend to need to have a relatively rural site and a pretty big wind turbine to, to make it pencil. Right, right. Now, um, what, what were some of the most surprising findings for you, David? Um, I mean, I touched on refrigerants. That, that was definitely the most surprising. Um, I think the way that it's broken out, one, one thing that's surprising, some people in the industry have told me that they, they were surprised that buildings don't matter that much. And they feel like, like food generation uh, was definitely something that they wanted to focus on more, even within their own careers. So like, I'm starting to see a number of projects where people are trying to have um, more food um, uh, growing opportunities on site and how to reduce food waste uh, within the building sector and things like that's great. So this is another example how buildings kind of cross over between a little bit of everything. Um, but the living building challenge does have uh, requirements as well for urban agriculture so that you're actually having to grow food around um, your, your living building. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, um, I, at the heart of the, the, the drawdown to some extent is, is this question, I guess, of, um, you know, the individual's role in helping create change as against society, as against, uh, you know, and cities in a way, I suppose. Um, there's been, there has certainly been a growing uh, interest in city governance, hasn't there? And uh, I know in the States, notwithstanding uh, the current administration's uh, views on the Paris Agreement and so forth, some, you know, the mayors, groups of mayors and so forth have been very, uh, been leading voices in this, uh, in, in various uh, approaches to dealing with uh, global warming and so forth. Um, I was wondering, uh, can you talk a little bit about that yeah yeah i think it, it, it's a really interesting topic in the u.s there's just generally this anti-government um concepts spread across our society so it it's interesting it, like since trump's been in office i feel like it's been a, a bit of a wake-up call i feel like a lot of people thought that um our government was doing quite a bit under the, the past administration. Um, but the reality is like we weren't doing very much under Obama either. So it, I think it's been a refreshing wake up call. It, it's helping people realize like they have to start making changes in their own lives. And it's really critical for like the future of human life on the planet because we define the world around us through stories. So, um, we we frame reality through narrative, and that's really the thing that that differentiate differentiates us from other species is that we agree on uh, fictional realities that allow for mass cooperation within networks, and we need better stories to to start making changes. And I feel like Drawdown is one of the best examples of a compelling story. To, to show people a pathway for change. And we can't wait for other people to do that. Uh, there's, a, there's a tendency, uh, I think just it's human nature to point fingers and say, you know, someone else is the problem. And like, why isn't government solving this? Why aren't corporations solving this? But the reality is governments, corporations, they're all just fictional realities. They're just conglomerates of individuals, right? And we need enough individuals to believe in an idea that they make changes in their own life and demand changes within their communities and create like a mass cooperation network to really solve, solve this. 
And it's not as hard. The thing that's so great about Drawdown is it shows that it's not that hard to achieve this. People are starting to think, you know, it's over. How are we going to solve this? But even the costs, I looked at the costs. I sent this to Paul Hawken about a year ago. I was looking at, like, if you look at all the costs within Drawdown, like, how expensive is it? And it seems quite expensive because right? it's like billions and billions of dollars. But I looked at the cost relative to the the Forbes um, wealthiest list, and the top ten solutions could be paid for by the fifty richest people in the world, and they could each keep one billion dollars. Uh, the top twenty five solutions could be paid for by the three hundred richest people in the world, and they could each keep one billion dollars. And it's kind of strange if you think about it. It's like one high school class of rich people. And if they just all chose to help fund this, it's possible. And and that's, once again, it's kind of like the pointing finger thing. But we need leadership both from the wealthy and from individuals so that across society, we all agree that we have a story that we're moving towards and that we can make this change. And, and it, it need, we need to show that it's possible because people don't think it's possible, they're not going to do anything about it. Yeah, it's a fu- it's a fascinating question, and I know there's there's uh, different perspectives on this. It, it is at the same time terrifying when you present uh, the data that we're building, you know, a city the size of New York every month, and projected to continue to do that. When you see, you know, the number of uh, coal-fired fuel stations that are being funded by China over the coming years and opening eight, ten new airports every year. At that scale, you know, uh, you translate that into various measures of uh, one's own personal consumption or plastic bags. And, you know, I mean, it goes on. There's, you know, lots of different measures and and clearly, uh, you know, considerable personal impact. But it it it's hard not to feel that really you know uh central governments and the relationship with large corporations has a key role to play in this and you know as you say um you know individuals and more really i guess communities and uh individuals like-minded individuals working together to create political change because you know you get into things like the circular economy, and again and again you see that it is terribly important the legislation and the structure in terms of creating incentives for the scale of change and the speed of change we need. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess when I when I was talking about stories, I feel like if we can have a collective agreement on what the right story is, that's when we'll be able to transform these other. Um, institutions within our society corporations to governments because if we all agree on what the solution is and we all agree on the pathway and we have stories and narratives that are compelling and show us that it's possible that's when you can get everybody on board to start making changes because it's going to be the hard thing is people have to change the way they're doing things and people often don't want to change things and I see that in our in my industry. Uh, it, it's a good example right now. the The building sector is quite um, busy in in the Pacific Northwest. We have a lot of projects that start with high sustainability goals, but the construction costs are so high because the the construction market is so busy. A lot of projects are not implementing. Uh, as many solutions as what they would like to because they they feel like they can't afford it. And 
that's an example where within the construction community, there's certain biases towards certain solutions and contractors just want to implement the solutions that they're used to implementing. And it, it's often driven by code. So the code kind of has the, the baseline and solutions that are like the baseline cost. Now, when we were trying to get those on projects 10 years ago, they were prohibitively expensive and contractors would price this forward where it just kill the idea. But now those are like the baseline and the low cost option. And I feel like there's this inherent um, bias towards a baseline and the key is having an agreement on what what that baseline is and then getting everybody up to speed so that we get the right pricing and the right um, participation across like all sectors to actually implement these these solutions. Yeah, I think it's very interesting what you say in the sense that um, it's probably fair to say that the whatever you call it, the green movement in the in recent decades has not been so successful at creating positive visions, um, more of a slightly uh, beating over a stick kind of theme of you know uh, doom and gloom and you know focusing on the you know the negative impacts and and and, and you know and, and very real and terrifying uh, you know out- outcomes of our of behaviour, but the you know creation of as you say these narratives these positive stories these these visions of the future has has probably not had so much attention yeah yeah absolutely we we need narratives and 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 examples of where to go because if we don't have clear narratives and visions we won't go there uh so it's it's like if we if our if our vision's a dystopian future we're probably likely to go towards a dystopian future and and we just have to have an agreement i I feel like the kind of negative cycle that will fall into especially within the green movement where people are just kind of like sky is falling sky is falling that's true kind of but if at, at a local level if you can come up with brilliant solutions like in building sector i mean i've seen all kinds of amazing things happen where I work in the Bullet Center in Seattle. Uh, that building is a living building. We generate more energy than we consume on an annual basis. We're drinking rainwater right now. Uh, we have composting toilets. I mean, we use a fraction of the energy and water of a standard building. It has um, and it has all these other benefits. It's, it's the best building I've ever worked in. It it has amazing daylight, and and everybody I know who works in it just loves it. So there is. There's all kinds of extra benefits that are part of these solutions. So, like the another one that we haven't talked about is walkable cities. Um, so, like many things in cities that that make them more sustainable also also make them more livable. And walkability is a great example of that. Uh, as we're having all of this urban growth, uh, the more we can have uh, walkability or biking infrastructure. Uh, the more people enjoy uh, those uh, locations, and and it's possible to have both, you know, great places that reduce emissions and create better lives for people. And that within the building sector, that like we're always trying to sell these ideas to clients, and and it's amazing how many of them make it through. I, I just my goal is to try to get the baseline, especially within the construction community, high enough that we're getting the right pricing on, on things. There isn't kind of biases towards 
towards business as usual for for different solutions. Yes, yes. Now um, we talked about the individual and, and government. I mean, did you, to any extent, cover this question of what kind of government regulations or incentives or things like that could be implemented, or do you think are, are, are potentially powerful? So, in terms of incentives, uh, in in North America, when I was digging into this like for for the analysis, we're using different proxy measure measures, especially looking at uh, adoption rates of lead platinum buildings, uh, living buildings, net zero buildings. And it's interesting. Uh, in general, in North America, it tends to be more voluntary, and we have some pretty innovative and amazing projects that have come out of those. But the big impact definitely tends to be more from the regula- regulatory standpoint. In Europe right now, um, the the regulations towards um, reducing emissions, like places like Brussels that started requiring uh, passive house for all new projects, that has huge impacts because it helps set that baseline for the construction community. And when you when you set that, then everybody agrees that those are the rules they have to play within, and then they figure out how to get the right price for it. When the baseline's lower, and anything that's extra is viewed as extra, there's an inherent tendency for the construction community to price it higher because they don't do it as often. So it's like the more the more we, as a society, you know, work on these solutions, the the cheaper they get. And and especially with things like passive house, a lot of that comes into labor skills, and and it's a very unique skill set for for designers and and contractors. Um, but from the incentive side, I mean, there are still some pretty interesting things happening. Like in Japan, they've had a subsidy program for natural refrigerants since 2014. Uh, that's been one of the major growth sectors for CO2 heat pumps, and most of the CO2 heat pump technology that we're starting to use in the U.S. is all coming out of Japan. I know that's true in other parts of the in the world as well. Um, and and that's just a great example. Like the Japanese government's helping subsidize innovation for manufacturers to have a global advantage because we we don't have manufacturers generating that equipment in the U.S. So it's kind of short sighted um, on our government's side. Um, and then. Rebates, I find, don't tend to make as much of a difference. Uh, rebates often tend to be, you know, you might get $5 out of 100, and most clients tend not to make decisions based on rebates. It's kind of so small. It doesn't drive change. Um, but one incentive I have seen start to make some difference is development bonuses. So when you have, um, you can get extra uh, floor area if you go with, um, certain performance levels. So we have a living building pilot program in Seattle. It, the adoption rate has not been super high. I've worked on lots of studies on it. I, there's a few projects that have implemented it, but uh, buildings get extra floor area by going through parts of the living building uh, pilot program. Uh, there are some net zero carbon rating systems that are being looked at for incentives like that as well. And I, I think that has a lot of potential. If there's enough uh, extra floor area for developers if, if a city has a height uh, restriction and you can encourage them to do the right thing that's a way to help drive some change and add value for for developers at the same time 
Yes, very interesting, very interesting. I'm just wondering, I, I, something just popped into my head as you were talking about um, I, something I, I guess we just kind of touched on a little bit. Uh, um, there is a phenomenon, I think, of increased, I guess what you might call economic segregation in cities. Um, certainly in the US, you've seen this in, in big cities and indeed in, Euro- in Europe as well. Does that have any impact, do you think? Um, I mean, it's a worrying kind of thing. I mean, I live in East London, there's waves of gentrification and so forth. But does that play in any way to some of the questions we've been looking at? Yeah, it, that that's a active discussion within our community. I, I'm part of the American Institute Architects Public Policy Board in Seattle, and we're constantly talking about the, topics like that especially there's a big homeless uh, crisis we have here right now Um, and same with diversity like trying to trying to build more affordable housing so there's some incentives similar to um, energy or emissions performance for low-income housing trying to get developers to build more low-income housing so it's mixed into the rest of the development development sector and I think that's really the key is that you have a diversity of different types of housing within these um, dense urban environments. So it's not just like the wealthy enclave and the poor enclave. Uh, you need a, a healthy mix of price points for, for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also you're talking about living uh, buildings and so forth. Is there a, an equivalent for living cities in a sense? Uh, yeah, the International Living Futures Institute has a, a program looking at that as well. Uh, it uh, I, The adoption rate has not been really high on that, uh, but there's some brilliant ideas built into that and some, some other sectors as well. But it's really just trying to figure out how do you share resources between facilities and make every new building net zero or net positive. Yes, yes. Great. Now, how can individuals listening to the, this podcast, what can we do, you know, in, the, in our built environment, I guess, <laughs> to be part of the solution? Yeah, I, uh, I love this because it's like, um, it's, it's easy, it's easy to hear all this, especially with drawdown. Some of it just seems like so much like government level. When I saw I saw Paul Hawkins speak at um, a book reading on drawdown in Seattle and one of the questions that came up from a woman in the audience was exactly that. She's like, how, what can I do in my own life? And you know, how can I implement this? And the building sector is a great example of places where you can do quite a bit. Uh, if you don't have led lighting, that's like really easy swap all your lights out, especially if you have incandescent or even fluorescent, uh, fluorescent has a lot of mercury in it. Um, and then, uh, the next thing, Look for heat pumps. Uh, heat pump hot water heaters are actually quite affordable. Uh, they're only slightly more expensive than standard hot water heaters. You can install it yourself if you just you know watch some YouTube videos. It's not that hard. Um, it's kind of this is where I just feel like part of the narrative again. Like if more of us just take ownership on it and are like, let's change things in our own lives, uh, get our own lives in order and then show people that it's possible then um then you can inspire you know your whole like friend friends network and you know community and you kind of like or this like force for positive change um insulation obviously if you, if you don't have insulation in your home that's relatively easy to retrofit uh rooftop solar uh the it's a bit more expensive 
than some of the energy efficiency measures I just mentioned. Um, and then also, but it's definitely worth it if, you, if you've got good solar access. Um, another option is if, you've, if you're using fossil fuels for heating your home, you should definitely look into getting heat pumps. Uh, they are also becoming more and more affordable. So you can stop burning fossil fuels for, you know, generating heat. But that's the, the lowest hanging fruit for most buildings. Great. Great. Are you optimistic? Is the the momentum? I mean, you're involved, in, you know, as, uh, as you say, in the various organizations in the states and the architectural side of things. And do you feel is, is growing awareness? Is it? Is are you optimistic? I am. I I feel like I feel like part of the issue, at least in the states, is that the baby boomer generation are the largest source of denial and. I've talked about some of the coworkers where we feel like they kind of have the attitude of um, smoke it while you got it. And they're mostly going to be gone by the time these issues come around. And within the leadership sector, baby boomers have been hanging on and, and controlling uh, decisions that really are affecting future generations. And I feel like they generate, like there's definitely exceptions to it, but as, as a whole, they don't take it as seriously as younger generations. When you look at, especially like Fridays for Future, that movement that's happening with students going on strike, trying to you know force some change. I, I went. There was a um, a big gathering about a month ago in Seattle that I went down to and saw you know all these high school students rallying, trying to uh, you know encourage change. I I'm really inspired by that. I'm inspired by. Uh, my own generation, I just feel like people take it very, there's a very different attitude about it. And my hope is that um, all the individuals who don't care and are kind of holding on to power can let go and let the next generation who do care and will have to live with the consequences of this um, take the reins. And then I think we'll start to see pretty dramatic changes happening pretty quickly. Uh, so that's my hope. <laughs> On that optimistic note, David, thank you so much for um, coming today and sharing all the uh, great work you've been doing on this and uh, the interesting and vital role of buildings and cities. And uh, yeah, and I wish you the best of uh, good luck with the continuing work. Great. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Drawdown Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. We would really appreciate if you could help spread the word by leaving a rating on iTunes, sharing with your friends and on social media. You can find out more about Project Drawdown at drawdown.org. If you'd like to hear leading sustainability and environmental thinkers share their views on the biggest sustainability challenges we are facing, you can listen to the Sustainability Agenda podcast at the sustainabilityagenda.com, iTunes, as well as other leading podcast platforms including Stitcher, Podbean and Google Play.